Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Chapter 3 of Explore Missouri's German Heritage, an eight-part program series that delves into the chapter of the book of the same title by W. Arthur Merhoff. My name is Caitlin Yeager, and I'm Director of Heritage Programs for Missouri Humanities. Our mission is to enrich lives and strengthen communities by connecting Missourians with the people, places, and ideas that shape our society. This series continues every third or every second Thursday of the month at 10 a.m. Uh, from now through April. Like we said, we are on chapter three this week. The book is available for purchase as well. And I went ahead and posted the link to purchase the book in the chat box on Zoom. And I'll go ahead and do that in the comment section of the Facebook Live video for anyone watching us on Facebook. The books are $25 each and all proceeds will help us continue to bring free public programs such as these to Missourians. Whether you're joining us through Zoom or watching on Facebook Live, we invite you to interact with us throughout the program. If you're on Facebook, feel free to comment to let us know you're watching or to ask questions for us to consider. If you're on Zoom, feel free to submit questions throughout the program using the chat feature or the Q&A feature, and we'll try and answer as many as possible throughout the program. Um, and unlike some of the other programs that we do, we're going to um, take audience questions throughout the program. So rather than doing just one Q&A session at the end of the program, uh, we are going to answer questions throughout as they pertain to the discussion at hand. So if you have something that comes up as we're discussing a topic, feel free to submit your question um, as you think of it rather than having to wait till the end. Um, of course, if there are any lingering questions at the end, we'd be happy to answer them then as well. Uh, if you're enjoying our program today and are interested in seeing more from Missouri Humanities, please check us out on Facebook or on our website for the most up-to-date information about our events. We also have a membership program, which is new to this year, where benefits include free books, discounted tickets to special events, and access to members-only programs. To become a member, visit www.mohumanities.org and click Memberships under the Donate tab. After our program today, I'll be sending everyone an email with a link to our program survey. I'd really appreciate it if you could all take the time to let us know what you thought of the presentation today. These surveys are really important as we continue to bring public programming to Missourians and work toward a more thoughtful, informed, and civil society. Our discussion today will once again include the author of the book, Dr. Arthur Mirhoff. We also have a special guest, Kathy Schopenhorst. Kathy's a local historian from Marthasville and grew up in Kansas City and has a bachelor's degree in sociology from Washington University. After working in the social service field for 16 years, she tried something new and started to work at historic sites and museums, such as the Boone Home, Boone Monument Village, and Warren County Historical Society. She also does volunteer work with the State Archives Local History Preservation Program, which led to the opportunity to process the archives at the Emmaus Homes. Her favorite position is at the Pierce Store in Marthasville on the Katy Trail. She also serves on the boards of the Boone Duden Historical Society and the Gann Historical Society Library. Um, Arthur, I'm going to go ahead and start us off and turn this over to you. Um, and as we've done with previous chapters, um, I'd like you to kind of set the stage for delving into the themes of this chapter. So uh, this chapter talks uh, quite a bit about um, the beginnings of German cultural heritage in Missouri. So I would like you to kind of set the stage there and then we'll delve into more discussion topics. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you, Caitlin. Remember, with regarding your surveys, vote early and often, as we say. No, I'm just, just kidding about that. But um, I do want to thank everyone for taking time on a beautiful day. As you can see behind uh, Kathy Schopenhorst, it's just a beautiful day out there. And Or you could be watching reruns of Jeopardy. So you have all sorts of options. And the fact that you're with us, we really appreciate. Um, once again, I'm... Arthur Mirhoff, and I'm the author of this publication, um, as the fact that um, Kathy Schopenhorst is with us today, um, partly that's to let people know that this was not a sole creative effort, uh, Michelangelo-like, but uh, really part of a collaboration through Missouri uh, Humanities that involves a lot of people over a lot of long period of time, and so, in a sense, I'm more midwife or a curator for um, a group of really um, committed people interested in Missouri's German heritage. And I just happened to uh, catch the wave, so to speak. 
and so what we looked at or what I looked at in chapter three was what maybe historians of religion or um, students of religion would call origin stories. And uh, I'm not saying that these things did not happen, but over time, sometimes uh, um, our origins become a little clouded in myth, perhaps. And uh, um, so the meaning of what happened and why and uh, who is involved can sometimes change over time. So I thought it was very important after we first looked in chapter two at those big events that shaped Missouri's German heritage and how people felt about their experience. Uh, that's one of the things we try and emphasize in this publication is the meanings that people brought to their experience, not just what happened, although that's the foundation, obviously, but what, how do they understand their experience, their culture, if you will, their way of life, and also the symbols of what, what we're talking about, the words they use, the language, for example. So these particular um, essays, and again, um, there's so much material out there, and to condense it to 150 pages uh, was quite a quite a task, I'll, I'll admit that, but rather than try and identify and write about everything that happened, we tried to focus upon some key artifacts. And as you'll, you'll see, whether it's uh, Gottfried Duden's um, seminal work or that uh, lithograph about the, uh, the Midori, Medora that illustrates the, the journey, the meaning of the uh, Gießen Immigration Society, or that statue of George or Georg Bayer in Hermann, which maybe 25 or 30 years ago might not have been there. So uh, how come there's all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but uh, eventually a statue to someone whose previous meaning maybe not didn't have the same kind of uh, status that it does today. So we're looking at what happened as well as why it happened and increasingly, what does that mean to people? So this, this entire project, whether it's the uh, Her German Heritage Corridor Initiative or this publication, Explore Missouri's German Heritage, are really about interpretation about how we make sense of or relate to our past. We can't recreate everything that happened, so we have to be selective and to focus on legacy. What's, what's passed on? Um, you know, maybe you don't want your great-grandmother's old mink coat. Maybe you don't want to feel comfortable wearing that outside. So maybe not everything that's passed on is valuable, but um, I, I believe, and I think Kathy and Caitlin would uh, agree that there's a lot in Missouri's German heritage that is worth being passed on and, and given new uses today. So chapter three looks at why people emigrated um, out of Germany, certainly in the mid 19th century, why they came to Missouri of all places and uh, looking at one of the perhaps more famous um, influential immigration societies out of Germany, but also looking at uh, Hermann, Missouri and the Philadelphia Immigration Society of an internal uh, migration, if you will. Why did people of German descent in Pennsylvania decide <laughs> somehow that was no longer the promised land for them and why move to Missouri, the far west? So um, I think they offer good contrasts and help to illustrate what was going on at that time. and. Uh, <clears throat> typically we want to know if you meet somebody for the first time you ask where's this person coming from and I think that's a good way to think about this chapter we're trying to figure out where are these people coming from quite literally but also imaginatively I think it's the perfect segue to our first topic which um, is really 
um, sets the stage for this chapter and really for the, you know, almost the entirety of, I think, German cultural heritage. We, we certainly don't want to negate or deny the fact that there were Germans here before Duden wrote his book, before the major immigration groups and the, the, the big waves of immigration that happened in the mid 19th century. Um, so of course, we, we certainly don't want to ignore that, um, but we'd be remiss if we didn't call attention to the fact that um, this idea of immigration literature, which Arthur mentions many examples of in the, in the first part, portion of this chapter, um, but more specifically, Gottfried Duden's book, Journey to the Western States of North America, which back then the Western states were the Midwest. It was Missouri, which is funny to think nowadays. But um, so that book was published in the mid 1820s. Um, and then after that, immigration from German states to the Midwest surged for decades. Uh, and, and Arthur notes um, in the book a, a quite a shocking statistic by the Civil War over 88,000 of Missouri's 160,000 plus foreign born residents were from German states. Um, so to get us going, uh, why Missouri, Arthur? Why, you know, of all the places they could go, why Missouri? That's a great question. And so we'll put the cart before the horse here. We'll talk about why Missouri instead of why they were, um, leaving Germany, and we'll get, we'll get to that, but uh, um, famous line from Bill Murray's movie Stripes, uh, talking to his troops, said, you guys are Americans, you know what that means, it means you were kicked out of every decent country in Europe, and that's kind of what's going on here as well, but <clears throat> long story short, Missouri, um, in 1821, if you haven't been paying attention, um, was the founding or Missouri's statehood. And we'll, we're coming up on the bicentennial of Missouri's um, statehood. So um, now that land that had not been really available for much settlement, except for people who are willing to go beyond the pale, if you will, into mis past the Mississippi River, now had the um, protections of statehood in this, this new emerging United States of America, still, still though, I'm not entirely clear what that meant, didn't mean that there was a lot of so-called free land, if you discount the, uh, the Osage and uh, uh, Missouri uh, tribes that had been forcibly moved west, but this was very rich, um, fertile farmland, it was well watered, and it had an incredibly central location in the heart of this new emerging country, right? Or, you know, the, uh, you know, the Mississippi, Ohio, Ohio uh, Missouri rivers come together, flow down to New Orleans. And so St. Louis and New Orleans were major port cities, and it was key to commerce in this new republic, as Thomas Jefferson well knew. So uh, its central location, its economic advantages, um, the availability of land following the War of 1812 and then later in 1820-21, Missouri's statehood that uh, made it very attractive for settlement. And its cultural geographers would point out that People like to, if they're gonna move, if they're gonna uproot themselves, going to a place that looks kind of like what you're familiar with is very attractive. Um, Scandinavians flocked to Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, large Portuguese colonies in uh, New England, um, Spanish in the desert Southwest. So there is this attraction of two places like those that they're familiar with. So Caitlin's absolutely right. You know, there were Germans here before, um, Germans settled in Texas and you know, just about every other state of the union that I'm aware of, but Missouri held a special attraction and partly it was economic, but I think partly it was the meaning that people associated 
or gave to this place a new Rhineland, if you will. Um, maybe, Kathy, you could um, elaborate on the factors that led to emigration to, to Warren County. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Missouri had been recommended to Gottfried Duden. And so he came here to check it out in 1824 and then stayed until 1827. And he went around and talked to people throughout the area to find out what it would take for people to move here and live here. And the letters that he wrote back were published in 1829, and people were very, very interested in some of his descriptions. One of his descriptions of the state of Missouri was that it had mountains, hills, and valleys, rivers and creeks, forests and meadows. It offers all the charm that may be expected from an unspoiled landscape. And so in 1830, the banker Berez sent Augustus Grubbs to Warren County. Well, it wasn't Warren County yet. We were still part of Montgomery County at that point, but to check out what Gottfried Duden had written. And then Grubbs stayed here about seven months, went back to Germany and contacted Duden and said, yes, he found things essentially the way that you described it and the the word of mouth and the other the letters that were written and the societies that were formed many of them wanted to come back here to Warren County which was formed in 1833 because that's where Duden had been and they were coming here for the opportunity to own their own land to make their own living Duden did expect that most people would be farmers, but at least some of the societies did make an effort to try to have a wide variety of craftspeople to be able to cover the, the blacksmithing and the other activities that were needed as well. Did I mention Godfrey Duden's letters? Why <laughs> Missouri? Well, as Kathy very presciently pointed out, yes, that was perhaps the biggest factor um, besides the obvious conditions themselves. Somebody has to say, this is the place. And I think that's, it went viral. Godfrey Duden's letters went <laughs> viral. Um, that's, that's the only way to describe it. Um, it. And these were not new phenomena. Um, um, Goethe's famous Sorrows of Young Goethe, his romantic novel earlier in that century, also went viral and actually led to a wave of suicides among romantic young Goethe's uh, all over Germany. So um, this phenomenon, it's not just uh, early 21st century. Um, it's been going on for some, <laughs> some time now. And, and Duden... I think was in this tradition of Alexis de Tocqueville um, himself, I believe an attorney and uh, trying to make sense of what's this new Republic that's taken place, a nation of laws and not of men, if you will, of people. And, uh, and so like de Tocqueville, he was interested in this emerging new American culture, this American way of life, but um, he had the advantage, and that, I think that's important to say that he hired out a lot of his own farm work. And uh, I think there's a big difference between doing your own farming in Missouri and having it done for you. I think it might color your perception, colors my perception of the landscape. And uh, so I think, as you pointed out, Kathy, that uh, People said, yeah, that's what it looks like, but what it feels like in the summer and in the winter, maybe something else again. And that, that might've been some of the frustration that some of these early um, settlers experienced as well. 
Um, we actually have a, a, a related question to um, this 19th century immigration. Michael asks if there's any connection between the Amish and Mennonite and other German speaking populations living in Missouri today and the immigration in the 19th century. I'll go out on a limb and say yes, there was. <laughs> um, one of the best examples of not necessarily the Amish or Mennonites, but um, kind of a utopian um, colony is that of Bethel, Missouri, which is um, not right along the Missouri River, actually a lot more closer to the Mississippi River uh, up near Hannibal, but it was founded for religious purposes um, under the leadership of William or Wilhelm um, Kiel, um, a very charismatic leader. And again, the 1830s, 1840s, their connections to what's happening in Germany at this time. Um, Oscar Hanlon, the famous immigration historian, talks about the uprooted, and that's the other side of the coin. Um, immigration historians talk about push-pull factors and what's, you know, what's going to get people to move away from centuries of traditional life in a, in a place. And so you need to understand those factors, but also the pull factors, um, the availability of land, uh, um, commercial opportunities, um, trade routes, and Juden's letters all factor in as a pull factor to why Missouri, your original question. But in answer to Michael's question, religious freedom was very much on a lot of people's minds, sometimes even freedom from religion, if you will. There's this, in many German communities, there's a strong rationalist uh, bent, if you will, free thinkers who didn't necessarily oppose religion, but perhaps didn't want to be part of any um, established church, any particular um, doc doctrinal um, explanation. And Kathy had mentioned that uh, it's also important to think about the religious orientation of many of these communities. Kathy, did you want to just say something about that? Yes, it seemed that many of the communities in this area were centered around a church, but they were pretty much, the, the people that settled in that community were pretty much restricted to that religion. Um, we have our Catholic communities of Dutzo and Concord Hill. We have the German evangelical communities of where Femio Sage was the first German evangelical church west of the Mississippi. And then Reverend Garlicks went out and formed other churches. The next one that was formed was Holstein, Holstein here in Warren County. And then we had German Methodist communities at Hopewell and Smith Creek. And um, there was a German Methodist church at Marthasville. Marthasville itself pretty much stayed an Anglo community for the first few decades, but the, it was surrounded by the Germans in, living on farms. And for the German evangelicals, by 1849, they did not have enough pastors to serve all of the new churches that were starting. And so they actually formed a seminary between Marthasville and Femiosage um, on what later became the Emmaus campus. Actually, we've also got a, um, an interesting factoid from uh, Kate Owens says that she just discovered that or rediscovered that the Missouri State Museum has one land grant issued to Gottfried Duden and Louis Eversman in July of 1825 and one just to Eversman in January of 1840. So um, interesting little archives that are that are still available for the public to see, I imagine for the public to see. Um, but as we, uh, you guys kind of touched on this very, very briefly and I want to go back to it um, the conditions in Missouri versus Germany, or Germany, I guess back then this wasn't Germany, uh, technically. So, um, so we have two kind of adjustments that people had to make. There were the political, religious, kind of the, the values, um, and, and kind of their way of life. So farmers, businessmen, et cetera. So 
what was the adjustment like coming from Germany, which um, we've, I think we've noted that at the biggest waves of, um, of immigration from Germany, there was a, a massive political, religious, economic turmoil in Germany, in, the, in these German states, um, which was a big influence to come to Missouri or come to America in general. Um, so what was that adjustment like coming from that kind of a place and coming here? Um, so I think, you know, the political and religious and almost maybe seems like a positive, but I know that we, there are several examples of, of them not, ex, not, ex, not knowing what to expect with the climate or the conditions to farm. Um, you know, we've, we've had several stories. I remember one that Anita Mallinckrodt told about um, some of the early settlers of the Mount Pleasant area and how they could have survived that winter without some of the English settlers that were there before them. Um, so, so talk a little bit about the adjustment. And I think, Kathy, you can probably talk a bit about Warren County area specifically, and Arthur, if you want to talk a little bit more generally, um, let's talk a bit about that. But I just mentioned a um, number of people had asked about the immigration historian I'm, that I mentioned, Oscar Handlin, H-A-N-D-L-I-N, um, his famous work, The Uprooted. And you know, there are other interpretations of what, you know, what was happening, but Hanlon was certainly a, a classic in the field. So I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, if you check the uh, resource bibliography at the end of the book, um, you'll also see some, some references there as well. And back to Michael's question, um, Missouri offered a lot of land, especially for, um, if, you, if you're the seventh son of an Amish farmer, in Germany, that's not a good situation. Um, here, it's a great do-over. Um, Juden, I believe, talked about, uh, there's room enough in the Missouri River Valley for a million small farms. So um, there was definitely that, as well as um, possibilities of religious freedom to set up your own communities. Like Kathy said, you find a place that's got the religion you like. Um, and if not, start one that you do believe in, as Wilhelm um, Rapp did. So as far as the adjustments that were required, I think one of the, to me, the best stories I heard about that was told by a folklorist. His name is Roger Welch. I don't know if Roger's still living, Professor Welch's still living, but this was at the 1983 tricentennial um, celebration for German immigration to the United States. <clears throat> he talked about in some little community that uh, uh, the German, old German farmer had a, a boil on his <laughs> rear end. And so uh, um, he went to the general store, I guess the drugstore, which was the drugstore at the time, and uh, you know, looking for some sort of a salve. And he went up to the young, female clerk and uh, um, said, kiss ya, kiss ya, which is, I guess, the German word for boil. And she pointed to her cheek. He said, nine, nine, pointed to his bum and got thrown into jail. So point being, that's, that's not the, <laughs> that's not the worst thing that happened, but as we'll see later, Language is one of the biggest adjustments that people have to make. And as we saw last week as well, um, some people preferred that everybody spoke English. And that's, that was a source of tension. <clears throat> Miscommunication sometimes in, in dealings and contracts, etc. And in a sense, <laughs> interpretation, trying to What's, what's this person mean by these gestures or um, these arrangements? <clears throat> and Missouri Germans brought very established beliefs and practices that we'll see throughout the rest of the uh, publication. So there was always this period of negotiation and sometimes it went better than others as we saw both with the Civil War as well as the First World War those were periods of heightened tensions in which you know, anything and everything could be misconstrued 
And uh, so when things got more polarized, I think that became even more difficult for this um, intercultural communication. <clears throat> so I would, I would say that very often it worked better. These relations maybe worked better outside of the main urban centers than it did in the rural areas. The rural areas probably worked better. People, as Kathy pointed out, tended to cluster together birds of a feather, if you will. And as, as you might see in the next chapter, looking at St. Joseph and uh, Catholic Church in Westphalia, very often people did, in a sense, create their own little communities and minimize some of those uh, um, communications, conflicts, if you will, or misunderstandings. Kathy, what about uh, an experience in Warren County? Well, with regard to the climate, one of the things that has been written about Gottfried Duden's letters is that the time he was here was unseasonably mild. And so his description of the weather of, and what to expect was much, they, they weren't prepared for the extremes that are, are regular Missouri. I read one story, I don't know if it's in the book or where it was, where they, they talked about the men, because they could only bring a limited amount of things with them that the men didn't want the feather beds brought, but the women that insisted on bringing feather beds were glad they had them. And it's important to learn to ask directions, actually, from, <laughs> from that point yeah. of view. The other thing was that Duden made them feel like anybody could be a farmer, that farming was relatively easy. And those people who had farming backgrounds or the ability to do things for themselves were much further ahead when they got here than the so-called Latin farmers. Latin farmers was a term given to those highly educated people who could speak Latin better than they could do the, the things that they needed to do for farming. <laughs> and many of the, the stories of the Latin farmers are that they were total failures. Some of them were ready to go back. The Reverend Garlics, who started the Femio Sage Church, started out farming and decided this was not for him. He was ready to go back to Germany, but his countrymen enticed him to stay and be their pastor. And so he actually went back and was ordained and then came back and, and was pastor for many of these churches. And then like many rural pastors, he'd receive eggs or, or food from congregants, right? Right. And Duden himself he initially was living with Jacob Hahn and had other people farming his ground. He wasn't doing it himself. So he really wasn't reporting from the perspective of someone doing the work. He was observing the work. We have a question. Um, Norman asks, how did the causes of immigration from Germany differ before and after the Civil War? Before the Civil War, I think, was the emergence of industrialization, especially in the Ruhr River Valley in <clears throat> Germany. And this is a period that you might have heard of Karl Marx, you know, these um, writing about the breakdown of traditional village life in, in the German states. I, I, Refer to Germany because we don't have time to name all what 28 um, different principalities or states. But again, there was no Germany per se, sometimes referred to as the Holy Roman Empire, which historians will always say it was neither Holy Roman nor an empire, but um, it's just a collection of sort of feudal states and <clears throat> So there was a change there from traditional village life 
to modern um, industrialization and uh, breakdown of well traditional occupations many artisans who had depended upon you know, traditional work for their livelihoods lost their jobs to emerging industries and uh, <clears throat> the other thing that I wanted to mention those push factors that Germany as we call it now was a highway for it was a battleground and a highway for the Napoleonic armies and that had the effect of disrupting, well, destroying many places as well as um, <clears throat> breaking down traditional loyalties, traditional um, allegiances to feudal lords, freeing, freeing serfs, if you will, from feudal obligations, but also, okay, once you're free, then um, you're on your own. And at the same time, industrialization is taking place. So that's why Oscar Hanlon talked about the uprooted through people who had something, had a traditional way of life, felt that it was being taken away from them. And at least up to the Civil War, um, came to the United States or uh, Missouri in order to recreate traditional um, German village life, uh, many of them. Um, after the Civil War, there's more nation building going on in Germany, rise of Prussia, um, militarization, nationalization. And uh, as both Kathy and I discovered in genealogical research, some of our ancestors after the Civil War were, was it uh, Im Heimlich Ausgewandert, Kathy? And they were my husband's ancestor was in 1834, so that was oh, really? that early. Mm -hmm. All right, mine was later after the Civil War, but uh, was um, secretly wandering, as that translation goes. Basically, weren't real keen on becoming part of um, the Prussian army, and so there was there were those factors as well after the Civil War. So more nationalization, centralization going on after the Civil War than prior. Prior to the Civil War was the rise of industrialization and destruction of traditional village life. I think that's an excellent question. Um, wars have a way of accelerating trends and introducing new ones that, uh, so it, it did change the nature of immigration um, there were different times where there were different reasons. For example, with the invention of the cotton gin, the linen industry collapsed. And so anyone involved in the linen industry needed something new to do. Um, the 1849ers were, again, a political um, wave. With regard to people that were already here by the time of the Civil War, Many of them left following the Civil War. As their families expanded, they began spreading out across the state. And many of them went to places like Lafayette County because a lot of the Civil War, pre-Civil War economy was slave-based. And the, the, as the plantations broke up, a lot of land was available at a low price. And so a lot of Warren Countyans moved on to, to Lafayette County at that time. That's, I think that's a great insight. The particularity, um, you know, even within those larger time spans. And you mentioned, the, you know, the revolution, failed revolution of 1848 in Germany which brought in a, a wave or an influx of very radical thinkers. And uh, those people like Carl uh, Schurz, for example, um, Franz Siegel, who played leading roles in the, uh, the Civil War and uh, the rise of the Republican Party. And in 1830, as we saw from the essay on legacy, People like Paul Philanius and Friedrich Wunsch, um, you know, maybe not as radical as the ones in 1848, but you know, very, very uh, 
strong idealists uh, um, who adopted, I think, many of the beliefs of the American Revolution and wanted to bring that to Germany um, did not go well. Well, I think this um, kind of leads us to shifting from the immigration itself to the legacy of German immigration in Missouri. Um, Arthur, you mentioned that legacy is a very big theme in, in this chapter. Um, you know, what is the legacy of German immigration, German cultural heritage? Um, often when we're working with cultural heritage in our respective fields, uh, it's all with the idea of legacy in mind. Uh, Arthur, you say in the book, quote, ultimately only those who live on can create the legacy. So essentially, no matter how much good you do while you're here on earth, it's essentially up to those that come after us to carry it on. Um, Kathy, I, I, I mentioned, I see you as an example of someone dedicated to the legacy of your community in, in Warren County. Um, so seeing as how involved you are in so many uh, activities, so many organizations, how has your work in places that you've been, such as Boone Monument Village, the Grobs House, Emmaus Homes, helped to continue foster this legacy of German immigration, German cultural heritage in the Warren County area? Well, even though Marthasville did not start out as a German community, it, it became a German community over the years. And uh, three years ago, we celebrated our bicentennial. And we certainly recognized our German heritage in our community. There are still a lot of the UCC churches in the area that started out as those German evangelical churches. And once again, we celebrate our anniversaries. Uh, I've been involved in publishing, publish, publishing books with regard to when Holstein had its 150th anniversary and when Marthasville had its anniversary. And with regard to the Grobs house, the, you know, Augustus Grobs, when he first came back from Germany to Warren County, he lived in the North Washington area. Ten years later, his store there flooded and he bought the store that was in Marthasville because the owner had just died of typhoid related to the 1844 flood. That store was passed down through three generations of his family. And I always think it's so interesting because it was passed down to his daughter and then the, her daughter and then her daughter, Helen Rushi, who was a local school teacher for 49 years. And in 1989, the Rushi Park Board was founded in order because Helen Rushi had donated her land to the city of Marthasville if they would restore the, the Grobs house and store and open it to the public. And so we have done that. We're only open one day a month, usually the first Sunday afternoon of the month, weather permitting. But that's a time when we talk about our, our, um, our local history, which is heavily German. I'm also involved with the Boone Duden Historical Society. We have archives in New Melly, and we're only open right now by appointment because of the virus, but um, later on we'll be back open a couple of Sundays a month. And again, we have an archive where people can come research their, um, their local, their genealogy, the local history, and we have some displays and we have meetings three or four times a year where we talk about our, our local history. Legacy is what people value. What if uh, <clears throat> your parents or grandparents offer you something that you don't really care about or know much about, it's probably not going to mean much to you. Um, which is why I think Antiques Roadshow is such a fascinating program, kind of a good model for what we're talking about here because like most people, we've got stuff lying around and you think to yourself, that old thing, you know, it's just taking up space. And then maybe you take it to um, an antiques expert and, you know, they, they throw up their hands and, uh, oh my gosh, you know, this is so valuable or this is one of the last remaining examples of. And then you think about, wow, you know, maybe this is something worth 
um, celebrating or, or remembering, but a lot of it depends as I mentioned the musical Hamilton and how- I was, I was just I was, thinking I was, of this. <laughs> I was listening to, uh, um, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And it's a powerful piece. And why is that important now? Because we're a nation of immigrants and, um, you know, we don't all have Yankee or Cavalier backgrounds, uh, but most of us come from places that, like Bill Murray said, you know, we get kicked out of every decent country in Europe and, and beyond. <clears throat> but who tells your story? Who tells the story of you know, a bastard orf orphan like uh, Alexander Hamilton? And, uh, <clears throat> but all of a sudden now as people began to realize how important our immigration history was, um, you know, it's not just Jefferson now, um, Alexander Hamilton, we have to come to terms with that legacy as well. And I think even though we saw last time how Missouri's German heritage kind of went underground, or at least in many places went underground because of problems associated with World War One and World War II, in which you know, celebrating your German heritage uh, wasn't necessarily the best thing to do, but there's always that sense that there was something there worth acknowledging, and, and maybe we can even learn from that. And now, um, when we're looking for all the resources we can possibly find to help us cope with unprecedented conditions, I think it's very important to look at what uh, Missouri's German heritage has to tell us especially in regard, you pointed out, Kathy, how long people would dwell in the land and other cultural geographers talked about the care with which uh, Missouri German farmers took care yes. of the land. I'm looking at your you know, tree behind, behind <laughs> you and uh, you know, I'm thinking that's so characteristic of German century farms and households. So Who's telling the story here? And I mentioned cultural waymarking, which is something that is, is fascinating in a way for kind of what we're doing with the uh, German Heritage Corridor. It's trying to get people to just share their stories about these objects or oral histories or these special places like, like the tree. We have GPS technologies, you know, we can in, encourage people to go out and explore. Gayden uh, go out and explore your your heritage, and so it's it's simply a matter of calling these things to mind. But again, people are going to bring different meanings to the same experience, the same same language, perhaps. So we better have a dialogue going, and that's part of the role of Missouri Humanities as I understand it, right, Kayla? Mm -hmm. Very much so. And I, I love that you brought up Hamilton because I'm um, proudly uh, obsessed with Hamilton. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think that that kind of, you know, the idea of the musical Hamilton, I, I feel like leads us perfectly to this this next topic, which is keeping, keeping heritage relevant. Um, and, you know, Hamilton, created this resurgence of interest in American history. Um, you know, and, and I'm a perfect example of somebody that grew up and even as I continued to study history in college, uh, did not think twice about colonial American history. And then, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda writes Hamilton and all of a sudden you realize all these wonderful stories that didn't get told in your typical history classes and, and you realize how interesting it is and how poignant it is and, and all the things you can learn when you when you're exposed to things that you know things like that that that's whose goal it is to to tell the stories of, of legacy um and I, and I love that that legacy fits so well with that um the quote from that musical that sticks out to me about legacy is um what is a legacy it's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see um so it very much ties back to that idea of only the on can create the legacy. Um, 
So, so how do we tackle, um, you know, for those of us that can't write musicals like Hamilton, <laughs> um, how do we tackle this immense task of keeping the legacy of German immigration and the, their cultural contributions in Missouri relevant or interesting enough for future generations? Um, Arthur, you quote Peter Roloff on page 38 when he says, we tell the old story in a way that the visitors are getting their own ideas of creating on their own the bridge to today's issues. Um, so, so with that in mind, how do we tackle this task? I wish we had more local history sites. When we had Deutsch Country Days, that was an opportunity to learn more about German heritage and German, what the Germans, how they survived when they were here in those early days. Um, I believe the town of Hermann does have some opportunities for more German heritage activities than most of this area, but go ahead, Arthur. No, yeah, I think your point is, is spot on, um, Kathy. <clears throat> if there's one lesson that comes out of quarantine and pandemic, it's how important place and face-to-face -face human interactions are to people and as well as getting out into nature. Um, <clears throat> and that's why I think cultural waymarking is, is important and preservation of unique natural and cultural heritage sites. You can read about it and well, <laughs> I shouldn't gainsay that because obviously I've written about it, but that's not the only way to experience the past. Um, memory tends to fade over time. I wouldn't necessarily trust my memory of what happened to me at age 10 or 12 or I don't know, um, even later. But if you combine memory and text, if you will, and the places themselves, the artifacts in which people can relate to them through all their senses, then I think, um, well, a Broadway musical probably kind of fits that, uh, that description, um, engaging people in, you know, as a whole person. And I think that Kathy's point about living history, um, <clears throat> but again, <laughs> it's a two-way street that you can put on a play, but if nobody shows up or they're not interested in the subject, then, um, you know, if that tree falls and doesn't make a sound unless somebody's there to hear it. So um, how to encourage that interest? And that's partly, I think, uh, what the Missouri Humanities German Heritage Corridor is really about is, first of all, engaging people who have some special knowledge and expertise and then trying to figure out how can we interpret this? And that's really what we worked on for several years. Um, and, you know, can, can, Missouri Humanities continues to work on interpretation, um, but also I think uh, getting it into the schools, the uh, local historical societies, heritage groups, auxiliary groups, these are absolutely essential to getting the word out in the communities Missouri Humanities can only do so much. It really takes people on the ground. You know, you don't want to buttonhole people. You don't want to be a street corner preacher necessarily, but I think engaging people uh, where they are and you know, sometimes it's just a heritage tree or a place or um, my, my best suggestion is food and festivals. People seem to really respond to me, the key to cultural diversity is through the stomach. And I think people can, uh, it creates a safe space, I think, for people to uh, begin to experience other cultures. Anybody who's been to Oktoberfest or MyFest kind of gets, gets that point. Mm -hmm. um, we do have, we've got about six minutes left before our scheduled end time. and. Um, on that note, I'd like to transition to a bunch of questions that are coming in. Um, 
So I'm going to try and a couple of these are similar questions. So I'll kind of group them together. A couple of them have to do with um, what is taught about German heritage in our public school system. Um, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know if Kathy and Arthur do. One, one is more about um, what is taught in the public schools about German heritage and what, you know, in related, is there any essential knowledge that teachers must have to teach in social studies and history um, about German immigration? So I can't answer that. I don't, I don't know today what is included. I do know that I think it's fourth grade, your, your social studies and history focus is Missouri history. Um, but that's about the extent of my knowledge. Kathy or Arthur, do either of you know um, anything about current curriculum? Not my wheelhouse. <laughs> the only thing I know is that at the time of the Marthasville Bicentennial, I did speak at the Marthasville School about our local history. And nearly every year I speak at the Warrington School, but not on German heritage, but uh, the schools there are Daniel Boone and Rebecca Boone Elementary, and so I speak on the Boone family. Mm -hmm. It's pretty hard to, to generalize about what's taught in schools. I mean, there's there's certainly controversy because, again, you know who live who you know, who lives who dies who tells the story. Um, that's kind of central right that right there, but uh, it probably will vary. As Kathy indicated, according to school district, there's going to be more interest in places that have a strong German heritage than those that don't. And that's, that's understandable, but I really think that um, there should be an effort to incorporate immigration history uh, more generally and, and let communities, if you will, decide what, what's important to them, you know, what their heritage is that you know, they really need to better understand. Mm -hmm. And I do know that um, prior to World War One and World War II, German was taught, the German language was taught in, in many, many Missouri schools alongside English. So, and of course, for obvious reasons during the World Wars, that changed. Um, but uh, someone, uh, Sarah asks, was there a German state or principality that had the largest immigration to Missouri? For this area, I'd say the, the majority came from Westphalia, the Nord Rhine-Westfalen area today, um, but they did seem to come from all over. I, that's worth looking up, by the way. That's an excellent question. Um, One resource Catherine. would be the works of Walter Kamphafner, because he has really studied the German origin. But I think your point about you know the diverse nature of the immigration from German states you know really was diverse. Uh, um, I would say perhaps more from the north, you know, central to northern part than southern Germany. I think that might be a fair statement. But again, it depends upon particular time. You know what was happening in places at a, any given time in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, another interesting question. Norman has a lot of interesting questions. <laughs> Did established communities, so Kath, this might be um, hinting at what you said about Marthasville, that Marthasville wasn't established as a German community, but it, it kind of became one. Did established communities become German communities after the Civil War because non-German inhabitants were inclined to move west after the war? Um, either of you have any uh, info about that? I think some Anglos moved west at the time the Germans started arriving, um, but I don't know specifically that the Civil War had a, I, ju I just don't know. Mm -hmm. Following the Civil War with the, uh, the land grant acts, the moral land grant, uh, uh, that's going to open up opportunities for people of, of all kinds, really, um, to expand. Washington, Missouri would be a good place to look at. It's of sufficient size. Um, and obviously, the name <laughs> suggests its Anglo origins, but has a very strong 
German heritage there. And I'm, I have to think that at some point it was, if not necessarily primarily, but heavily um, German um, and it, they played a major role. But is that connected? I don't know if that's connected to the Civil War per se. And I, unfortunately, um, we are at 11 o'clock, um, and as is a good problem to have, lots of questions and not enough time. Um, I will say that someone did ask about um, other towns aside from Herman with noticeable German architecture. Uh, and Arthur, if I remember correctly, uh, architecture is a big topic that we'll address later um, in the book. If you come back next time, Promise we'll talk about it. Yes. <laughs> and with that said, next time <laughs> is. I can uh, read in the book if you want. <laughs> next time, our next program on chapter four is uh, Thursday, December 10th. Uh, so we invite you to join us again uh, next month as we do our next chapter. Um, thank you to everyone that joined us today. You guys had some great questions. Um, again, I'm sorry we didn't get to them all. It's, it's hard to to balance uh, discussion questions from the book with discussion questions from our audience. And I try and do my best, but alas, we always run out of time. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't ever want to keep people too, too long. But um, again, thank you for participating. Uh, keep an eye out on your emails for our survey. Those are extremely important to us um, as program directors. They're our bread and butter as we continue to plan programs. Um, so I will leave you all there. Have a great rest of your week. Kathy and Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. And Arthur, we'll see you next time. And Kathy, maybe you'll join us as one of our attendees again. Next time is our big holiday special, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Lots planned for you. So you better come back and watch. <laughs> thank Thanks, you, Kathy. Everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>